You're listening to audio from Redemption Church of Houston. We are a people who believe that Jesus has invited everyone into his radically inclusive, world-altering way of love. That means that when we gather on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. or in homes throughout the week, you are welcome here. Regardless of your social status, gender, race, sexual orientation, or politics, we want you to fully and actually join, grow, worship, and serve with us. Whoever you are, whatever you've done, Jesus invites you into his radical love just the way you are. And so do we. Good to see you all this morning. As always, um, happy Sunday. It's good to worship together. Um, I don't ever want us to take that for granted. I forgot to set up my little uh, fancy thing, and so I'm going old school music stand this morning. It'll be great. Um, so I think over the last several weeks, we've been in this series called A Quiet Life. And we've explored this idea of what does it actually look like to live as the people of Jesus? In 2022, what does it mean to participate in Jesus' restoration and redemption of the cosmos? And this week, today, I want to acknowledge uh, a real desire that a lot of us have, especially if you grew up in and around Christian circles, It's the reality that we all want to see a different world. Like we see that there's actually real brokenness in the world. There's real like systems of injustice in the world. And we want to be a part of fixing it. We are the, right, well, many of us in this room anyways, are people who wanted to stop Joseph Coney. We did like the Coney, Coney, uh, uh, Joseph Coney 2012 thing and we posted banners, and we slept out in, like, parking lots if you were, like, super hardcore into stopping Joseph Coney. Um, Did you know that Joseph Coney is still alive and is still at large and is still running around? Uh, They're not exactly sure where because, of course, they don't have him. Do you know that over $800 million was spent by the United States government alone to try and catch him? That our camping out and our posters and our right slogans, maybe they made some difference, but they didn't really make the difference that we wanted to see. But we also bought Toms, right? Because it was revolutionary to think, wait, wait, my buying power can actually be like benevolent. Like I can buy a pair of shoes and then this company will give a pair of shoes away to uh, someone who needs shoes. This is great. Like how could I go wrong here? This is fantastic. I'm a good person. Look, I wear Toms. I'm changing the world. (laughs) And we're all running around looking like elves in our skinny jeans and our Tom shoes. And Tolkien is rolling over in his grave somewhere. But you know that Tom's, right, it still exists. But he's partnered with Joseph Coney. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> That's like a weird turn. No, no, so like Tom's doesn't do their buy one, give one program anymore. And do you know why? 
they struggled to actually follow through on the, hey, how do we actually give these away? How do we find people that need shoes? And then logistically, how do we get them to them without like destroying the planet in the process and destroying the communities and destroying the feet of the people who are wearing them? And so Tom's uh, didn't actually change the world. We put X's on our hands to raise awareness about human trafficking. We're going to end human trafficking as a generation. It ends with us. And yet an estimated 25 million people were trafficked last year. 25 million people. That's 10 Houstons were trafficked, treated as property, exploited for someone else's gain. Our exes and our awareness didn't change much. And I don't even need to get into our posting of black squares on Instagram, or maybe if we were super courageous, uh, Black Lives Matter hashtag, and yet police brutality continues um, at an alarming rate, especially against people of color, especially against black men. And so while some progress has been made, and I'm not trying to say that we should not be social activists, I'm certainly not trying to say that we shouldn't post stuff on social media, that we shouldn't raise awareness, like these things are really important. But I think innate and what it meant to be a millennial was that we were finally the generation that got it. And we're gonna change the world by the way that we live. Fast forward, I had my 40th birthday a couple of weeks ago. That's where I went all black. Just kidding. <laughs> Brett, I'm, a, I'm an older, I'm on the older end of millennials, and yet we're now in midlife, and we're looking around, and is the world better than it was in 2005? Are our lives better than our parents' lives were in 2005? That's the, the millennial question, right? And so not much has really changed. Our largest efforts were largely ineffective. The world continues to go, uh, by and large, the same way that it went before. Right? And maybe we've moved some things. Maybe we've raised some awareness. Maybe the needle is moving in the right direction, and that's certainly a good thing. But the world is largely the same as it's ever been. Especially after the last five years, we're left with the reality that our like monumental effort to be different was just simply ineffective. So what do we do? Where do we go? Well, I think part of the problem here is I want to suggest another approach. Part of the problem with that whole paradigm is that we were the heroes of the story. We were going to be the ones that because of our piety, because of our love for justice, because of our finally getting it when others didn't, the world was going to be different because of us. And we wanted to be the heroes of the ark of justice. And Jesus does invite us to change the world. But it's not the way that we expect. It starts a lot smaller than we'd probably like. It's a lot harder than we would want. He's shown us a smaller way, a slower way, 
but it's his way. And it is no less revolutionary. It is a way that threatens to turn the world on its head, to fill the world with joy and peace and hope and love. And so we need to talk about justice because part of what it means to follow Jesus is to be a people of justice. Following Jesus will naturally lead us to justice. But what do we mean by that? Because I say justice and you probably are, right, there's, I don't know, 70 of you in here and we're hearing maybe 60 different things. When I say the word justice, in your mind there's some sort of picture. What do the scriptures mean when they talk about justice? What does Jesus mean when he talks about justice? Um, The Bible Project, it's an online resource you can go and watch really well done videos that give great short explanations that are theologically like really rich and important. They de- they've got a great video on this. We could probably just turn that on and I could shut up. Um, but, you know, I'm not going to. Um, and it's great, so go watch it. It's fantastic. But one of the things that we get out of the Old Testament is this very different picture of justice. And what I want to help us, or what I want to do for us to help us see this is, is I want us to look at the picture of the Exodus. Or maybe, maybe not something we talk about very often, or maybe something we even like morally struggle with, like, oh my gosh, God went in and did what? Ah, oh, this is crazy. And yet through the Exodus, the Exodus becomes the primary story into which God calls the people of Israel to be a people of justice. I'm a God of justice, look at the Exodus. You should be a people of justice, look at the Exodus. And that's going to spill over into the New Testament. So what do we learn from this? In the Exodus, we learn that the Old Testament primarily has two types of justice. There is a justice that is against the oppressor, and there is a justice that is for the oppressed. Anytime we see this retributive, this punishing justice is how we might think of it, it is almost always couched against someone who is oppressing someone else. And what we mean by that is not just they're being mean or they're being a bully. Yeah, they absolutely are being mean. They absolutely are being a bully. But what they're doing is they are leveraging their power against someone else in order to elevate their status. They are stepping on the backs of human beings in order to rise up. This is what it means to be an oppressor in the Old Testament. And the God of the Old Testament has some very strong words to those people. By the way, so does Jesus. And yet to the oppressed, what is justice? It's liberation from the oppressor. But it's not just that. It's not just freedom. It's elevation. It's a return to what you deserve as a human being made in the image of God. This is where we get our language in the United States of America of rights. It's literally coming from the King James Version translation of the the Bible. And the the way that the Old Testament would couch this is, is all human beings have rights. All human beings have a right to like exist and breathe and live and even, even flourish. And it's your responsibility, Israel, to ensure that the vulnerable among you can flourish. Well, how do you do that? You have to give to them what they can't give for themselves or can't get for themselves. 
And so the way that this ends up being fleshed out, right? And, and this is in the law. This is all over the prophets. It's all over the Psalms. Is this idea that the vulnerable among Israel, it was Israel's responsibility to take care of them. And who were the vulnerable? It's people who didn't have access to land. So it was the orphan, the widow, the foreigner or the immigrant, right? Because you're not from there. You might have land somewhere else, but you don't have land in Israel and the poor in general. And so how did Israel take care of them? Uh, they gave them a dollar when they pulled up to a stop sign. No. Uh, there's these laws like, hey, when you go through and you glean your trees, uh, you know, you're knocking the olives out of the tree or whatever. Don't take it all. Go in, hit it once, whatever falls, that's yours, take it. But there'll be a bunch that didn't fall. Don't come back the next day and hit it again when it's ripened and will fall too. Leave that for the poor. Or the edges of your field, don't harvest the edges of your field. Leave the edges of your field for the poor so that they could have food, they could have sustenance, they could be provided for. The Old Testament is obsessed with this type of justice. Because the God of the Old Testament is obsessed with this type of justice. What do I mean by that? Of like the 400 and some odd, nine, uh, some odd t- times that this occurs in the Old Testament, like 300 and something are in terms of like taking care of the poor versus what we'd expect to see in the Old Testament of like God uh, punishing the evildoer. And in fact, these things are really closely tied together. The evildoer is evil because he's not doing the type of justice that God wants. He's oppressing. Just a a couple of quick references so you can kind of see a picture of this. In Psalm 82, verse 3, the psalmist says, give justice to the weak and to the fatherless, right? This is that word. Mishpat is the word. Give justice to the weak and to the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rally around them. Protect them. Care for them. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 17, learn to do good. What does it mean to do good? Seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, and plead the widow's cause. This is what led um, a really famous Catholic theologian who now teaches at Notre Dame or taught at Notre Dame, uh, Usto Gonzalez, He has this language. It wasn't actually his, but he made it famous. It's God's preferential option for the poor. That it's not that God uh, hates the rich and wants to cast the rich down or destroy the rich. I hate the rich, right? That's not necessarily the case. It's that God will lower the place of the oppressor in order to end their oppression and elevate the status of the oppressed. In other words, the New Testament says it this way, God gives grace to the humble and he opposes the proud. And we hear this in spiritual language, but both the Old and the New Testament, it absolutely also has to do with real material reality. And so we get to our famous verse in the Old Testament. Uh, this was the one that if you're a millennial like me and you were running around with X's on your hand wearing Tom's ending, you know, Joseph Coney's reign of terror, you had Micah 6-8 tattooed somewhere on your body or plans to get it tattooed somewhere on your body. He has told you, humanity, what is good. 
What does the Lord require from you except to carry out justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God? And so we see this combination of justice and mercy and humility. And this is not just the prophet like randomly throwing out like, hey, I don't know, there's some good things. Uh, justice is good. And then, oh, mercy is also good. So we should do justice and we should do mercy. And like while we're doing that, it'd be great if we were humble in the process because no one likes like a jerk. But you know, these things actually go together. And when we get to the New Testament and we see things like Philippians chapter two, where the God of the universe humbles himself in order to have mercy on the lowly so that he might elevate their status to his own. Justice. So justice and mercy and humility go together over and over and over. And the picture that we get is exactly the picture of what it means to be a righteous person in the Old Testament. This is why the prophets are railing against Israel. Like, I don't care about your sacrifices. Your worship is empty and meaningless noise to me because you come to me in worship, but then you oppress your neighbor. That's not righteousness. Reading your Bible while you're stomping on the neck of your neighbor is not righteousness. Righteousness is doing justice, and loving mercy, and walking humbly. Righteousness means that the lives of the vulnerable will be materially better because we are in them. That the lives of the vulnerable will be materially better because they know us. They're in proximity to us. Right now, this is where we get really, uh, we have to be very careful because we've done this in the past in some ways that are really gross. Right? I'll use this one example. There are many others, but like, let's take short-term mission trips for an example, right? And I'm not, short-term mission trips are great. I used to work in a missions office. My job was to like plan and facilitate and coordinate short-term mission trips. And you know what I learned? And talking with like the organizations and the people and the churches that actually lived in the foreign countries that we were going to is that we often left more of a mess than we actually helped. And that we walked out, and myself included, patting ourselves on the back. Look how much we love Jesus. Look how much we've done for God. I went all the way around the planet to India, and I shared my wisdom, my, the riches of my wisdom with them. Right, I was like 20. <laughs> and I left. My two weeks with them was going to radically change their lives. And the people that actually lived there, the pastors that actually worked there, that were there actually shepherding the community, that were walking side by side with the people that were there, that were neighbors to these people, were left to clean up the mess that we made. Jesus is our example. And his example makes something really, really clear. There can be no justice without relationship. Right? We go back to our picture of the Exodus. God frees the people of Israel for what? 
Does anyone know? I, I will love it if you like shout some things out. It'd be great, actually. So it's awkward. We don't do that in church, but God rescues the people of Israel uh, not just because their enslavement was bad; it certainly was bad. But He frees them, and then He comes alongside them, and He dwells in the middle of them. But then he goes another step further and he makes a covenant with them, like a, like a marriage pact with them. He doesn't just liberate them. He lives and dwells among them and he says, you are my people. It's relationship. It's covenant. And this is exactly what we see in Philippians 2. Right, when Jesus comes down from heaven, becomes human, he does not just become human to do some sort of divine magic trick. And I've got to, there's like a divine loophole here and I have to become human, and, right? He becomes human to become our brother. To become one of us. To be our friend. And to liberate us. Bruce Waltke is one of my favorite Old Testament uh, theologians, and he says this in, in a lot of places. Um, I first encountered it in Genesis, in his commentary on Genesis, and I used to have it when I was a high school teacher. I taught Bible, um, and I would put this quote on the wall. And I thought it was fantastic, and you'd have kids come in, and this was the thing I pointed back to over and over and over because it so beautifully captures so much of what it means to be the people of God. Right? And I want us to understand, like this is an Old Testament professor talking about what the Old Testament says about God and the people of God, okay? Because I think sometimes the Old Testament gets a bad rap, you know what I'm saying? The righteous are willing to disadvantage themselves in order to advantage the community, while the wicked advantage themselves in order to disadvantage the community. The righteous will disadvantage themselves. They will lower themselves. They will stoop down in order to elevate their neighbor, to elevate the community, to elevate their fellow Israelite, while the wicked steps on the bodies of their neighbor in order to gain, in order to get ahead, in order to... right. So what in the world does any of this have to do with Titus? And like I just talked about how like we don't have these grand, we shouldn't have these grand pictures of like justice and changing and and I've just painted some pretty grand pictures of justice and changing the world. So wait, what do we actually do? Where do we go from there? What does it look like for us to be a people of justice? I think Paul is really helpful here. I think Titus is actually really helpful here. So this is, uh, it's a short letter. It's very similar to 1st and 2nd Timothy. These are letters from a pastor to a pastor. So Paul has started these churches and he had these companions that were kind of like apprentices of his. And he's writing a letter to them saying, hey, you're doing great work. Keep it up. Here's some notes. And so we got like half of the letter to Titus that we read this morning. I'm gonna pull out parts of it. He says in verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and in a godly manner in the present age. And so we can begin to import our Old Testament language into this passage. 
Right? We can begin to take the Exodus picture and impose it onto like, wait, what does it mean to live a godly life? What does it mean to be a righteous person? Righteousness and godliness means living as liberators rather than oppressors, which again is like this big high-minded idea. We're going to bring it down to like the normal daily life here in just a second. But God's action on behalf of the oppressed has been done in Jesus. And as we follow Jesus, that means, this means that we will begin to do similar types of things. And so we live as liberators rather than oppressors if we're talking in these big categories. But he says that we're to do this in a godly manner in the present age. And what does Paul mean by this? He always understands the present age, not just as like a location in time, but as, a, as an empire, as a force, as a, uh, I don't know, as a reign of something besides God. And for Paul, it's always the reign of sin, death, and the devil, so that this present age is marked by the kingdom of Satan. And so what does it mean to live a godly life in the kingdom of Satan, in the present age? This is what Paul is saying. And he says simply this. Verses 13 and 14, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. Sounds a lot like Exodus, eager for good works. And so we might miss the contrast Right, so that Jesus is coming, he's liberating a people in order to like have relationship with them and they are to go about doing this instead of that. They've been liberated from their lawless deeds and they're now being invited in to participate in good deeds. He goes on, verse one. Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed. We see it again to slander no one, to to not be contentious, to be gentle, showing every consideration for all people. So this last week in film club, we uh, did Under the Banner of Heaven, which if you haven't seen it, it's incredibly disturbing. It's a series, but it's incredibly, based on an incredibly disturbing true story um, about like a fundamentalist Mormon cult. And there's a lot of talk about like anti-government. Anyways, I say all of that to say I was gonna make like an anti-government joke here. And then I realized, nope, It's not funny because some people have done some really messed up stuff with that, Um, right? But so Paul is talking about like, hey, what does this actually look like? And in this, he's talking about, look, it's not about overthrowing the Roman Empire. It's not about like, hey, we're going to do these good deeds and then we're going to take over and it'll, it'll be ours now and we will establish the kingdom of God. No, no, that's not it. Don't slander anyone. Don't be contentious. Be gentle. Show consideration for all people. It's a subversive way of Jesus. Paul says it like this somewhere else, Philippians 2. Consider one another's needs as more important than your own. Don't look to your own affairs, but look to the affairs of those Around you. He goes on in verse 5. He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we did in righteousness, 
but in his accordance with, with his mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. This is a description of, of baptism. Whom he richly poured out upon us through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by the grace of Jesus, we would be made heirs with Jesus. Like royalty. Like this is the elevation language, right? According to the hope of eternal life. This statement is trustworthy, and concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. He has told you what is good. Do justice, love mercy, walk humbly. He finishes in verse 14, our people must also learn to engage in good deeds to meet pressing needs so that they will not be unproductive. Literally what this says is in order that they may provide the daily necessities and not live unproductive lives. What's practically happening in this community is you have a community of people who are following Jesus and what Paul is telling their pastor to teach them is to provide for your neighbor to look around and with open hands, live an open-handed life that helps the people around you, regardless of who they are, regardless of what they believe. Help them. Love them. Make a difference in their life because they know you. See, in uh, evangelicalism, we often see our, ourselves as the solution to the world's problems. Right? This is, maybe I'm just like projecting onto an entire generation of Christians. <laughs> but this was like our whole thing. Like we were the ones that were gonna get it right. We were the ones that were gonna like change the world through our faithfulness to Jesus in ways that others weren't faithful. And the world was suddenly gonna be a markedly different place. And there's this desire in all of us, regardless of whether you grew up in that world or some other world or whether you're in the generation before me or after me, right? We, we naturally want to like respond to big problems with big solutions. Let's build like a giant uh, mega church and it can do, I don't know, whatever we think it's gonna do and it'll make the world such a better place, right? And I'm not knocking mega churches, they're great. Um, they do good, like actual, real, tangible good. So, like, please don't hear me knocking them. But at the end of the day, right, the world is still a nasty and unjust place. So, how, what do we do? We're not called to live grandiose lives that single handedly solve the world's problems. Jesus doesn't say, hey, you. Come follow me, and you change the world. No, he says, hey, come follow me, and I want you to love your neighbor. Hey, come follow me, and I want you to become a person who loves. Hey, come and follow me, and I want to invite you into divine relationship in a way that can inform and inspire the way you have relationship with every human being that you encounter. And this is how the world will change. The most common way that we will do justice in our daily lives is one relationship at a time. 
Right? And I'm not at all suggesting that we should not go after systems of injustices, that we should not go after like these, um, these ways of oppression that exist in society, these structures that are jacked up. Yes, absolutely, let's go after them. But at the end of the day, if you're doing that and you don't even know the name of your next door neighbor, People's lives will be different because we're in them if we're following Jesus. There are many of us in this room whose lives are materially better because of the peop- other people in this room. Because we have encountered divine love and divine community in a way that we hadn't before. And our lives are better because of it. We should absolutely change and shape institutional and systematic injustices. I am in no way suggesting that we replace that. But in our day-to-day, Monday to Friday, everyday life, when it's not a primary or it's not election season or there's not some sort of protest to be involved in, what do we do? You love your neighbor. You know people and you invite them to know you. And when they have a need, you meet it. Jesus doesn't call us to change the world. He's going to take care of that. He invites us to love his neighbor. In fact, you know how Jesus teaches his disciples to change the world? He says, go make a meal. Prepare a table. Invite your neighbor to come sit around to join me in a feast. As we commit to loving our neighbor, and seeking the good of their lives, things can actually begin to change. Lives will be different. I wonder how many of you could point to a specific person, right? Don't actually point to them. That would be weird. (laughs) Thanks, yeah. Someone in this room or a part of this church that has done something for you, that has, I don't know, maybe restored your faith in God or maybe restored your faith in humanity or made you realize like, oh my gosh, I'm actually valuable and worthwhile or I actually really matter. Or maybe you're in less medical debt because of them or maybe you have a car because of them where you didn't have a car before. Maybe your life is just a little bit better because someone was willing to love you. This is what Jesus is inviting us into. We want to miraculously heal the blind, right? And absolutely nothing wrong with healing the blind. I'm all for it. We want to lay our hands on the lame and have them get up and dance. And I'm not against healing the lame and the lame dancing. We want to resurrect the dead, right? We want to be able to like say, hey, get up back from the dead. Dead is terrible. Don't be dead anymore. And they come back to life. And yet Jesus says, go prepare a table. Go love your neighbor. And invite them into a way of love in which I am at the center of and a part of. And watch me change the world. Let's pray. Jesus, will you help us? Will you convict us in the places that we need convicting? 
um, the ways that we are living that draw us away from our neighbor and into isolation, away from one another and into isolation. Will you show us the freedom that you have made for us in Jesus? Invite us to let go of some of our fear. Invite us to let go of some of our scheming and plotting and planning on how to build a beautiful life and help us just to trust you and to love well, to be prepared for the opportunities to give of our time and our money, our emotional capacity to other people. Help us to take care of the vulnerable among us. And when we're the vulnerable ones, will you empower your community to love us well? We love you. Thankful for your grace. Thankful for your mercy. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about us, get coffee with a pastor or visit us on a Sunday, then go to redemptionhou.com. And please know today that you are fully loved and fully accepted just the way you are. We hope to hear from you soon.